Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Today, we are exploring an age-old question that comes up in the world of direct care and really applies to anybody out there with uh, an interest in lowering costs and taking advantage of some really interesting financial instruments out there. So, of course, we are talking today about health savings accounts. Now, there's a lot of Oh, misconception, misinformation, gray area when it comes to direct primary care and health savings account and how these two incredible instruments can coexist and work together. So to help us explore that particular subject, I'd like to welcome Scott Borden, VP of Sales for Health Savings Administrators to the show and to help us out, walk us through this conversation. So we decided we needed his expertise. Scott, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Now, like I said, uh, you know, a minute ago, health savings accounts. Give us kind of the the background of health savings accounts and why we hear that those terms a lot, or HSAs, you know, for short, like we're going to refer them to. Give us kind of how this account and this this financial instrument came to be. Um, kind of a quick history lesson. Actually, it goes way back to the 90s, the Kennedy-Cassebaum bill that uh, came out in 1997. They were called medical savings accounts at that point in time, and it was supposed to be a pilot program. They were only going to allow, I think, 750,000 of them because they thought if anyone truly understood triple tax advantages and, and, and the advantages of putting money back now that, that rolls over from year to year, that we need to limit that because it's going to cause adverse risk selection. If, if most people understood how taxes work, now insurance works, that a lot of people would flood in this direction. And, and in their opinion, it would only be healthy people signing up for medical savings accounts. Well, unfortunately, there wasn't nearly enough education came out uh, during that period of time. And, and I found them in 1998. And I swear I was the only person out there that was really promoting medical savings accounts at that point in time. And altogether, between 1997 and 2004, when actual health savings accounts was no longer a uh, they came out in 2004. So it was no longer a pilot program that was just renewed year after year. It was actually a permanent bill at that point in time, permanent option. At that point in time, there were only 75,000 total medical savings accounts that were that were uh, in place. And, and I swear, I personally put about half of those out there because, like I said, if you understand taxes, how taxes work, triple tax advantage goes in pre-tax earns interest tax-free. And as long as you spend it at some point in time on eligible medical expenses, it comes out the backside tax-free. It's the best tax advantage tool ever. And you can actually earn market rates in the market with your medical savings account or now health savings account. So if people truly understood taxes, how they work, they would be fully funding their health savings account or back then medical savings accounts. I've got lots of clients out there with some multiple six figures already saved in their medical savings account or health savings accounts over the years because they understand the tax advantages there. The problem is trying to pay for direct primary care with a health savings account. And the problem is the required high deductible health plan. Because according to the government, uh, direct primary care, direct care is insurance. Somehow they've determined it's insurance. So because an HSA has to be tied to a high deductible health plan, high deductible, I'll, I'll use air quotes for that one because 
Right now we're talking about high deductible can be as low as $1,400 for an individual or $2,800 for a family. It's no longer high compared to what other health insurance plans are, are costing nowadays. But you're required to have all of those deductibles, that out-of-pocket come up front before doctor's office visits can be paid for or prescription drugs can be paid for other than a routine physical. So your annual checkup, mam and pap, immunizations for kids, all of that can be covered up front, but nothing else by law can be covered up front until that threshold has been met for the high deductible health plan. Sure. That's the problem. They're saying insurance is covering it up front through direct care. Yeah, and I appreciate that kind of uh, giving us the history there and then talking a little bit about uh, the mechanics of the account. So just to summarize and, and make sure that um, everybody followed along there. So medical savings account were the precursors to HSAs came about in the 90s. Nobody really knew about it, um, which is shocking, but yeah, it kind of makes sense that uh, the government didn't want anybody to know about these triple tax advantages <laughs> accounts because that seems to me to be uh, a potential revenue loss uh, for the feds on that one. But no doubt. they do the right thing and they, they uh, make this permanent legislation, uh, at least in the early 2000s. And then the, the interesting part to me is, is a lot of this high deductible aspects of it. Was that something that was the original design of HSAs and, and medical savings accounts that they have to be tied to these HDHPs, these high deductible health plans? Yeah, that's always been a requirement. Uh, in fact, originally in medical savings account, the amount of money you're able to put into the MSA was tied into a percentage of the actual deductible. So it was kind of a, a strange formula. You weren't able to put nearly as much money into the medical savings accounts as what we can put into health savings accounts today because they're no longer, uh, even an individual that might have a $1,400 deductible can still put for, for next year, for 2021, $3,600 into the health savings account where a family can put up to $7,200. Gotcha. And what's always bothered me, and, and, and I'm a big believer in HSAs um, as, a, as a way to be an educated consumer too, and put my dollars to, you know, my hard-earned dollars uh, towards the best ways. But it seems to me that there's always a lot of confusion over, you know, let's leave direct care out of it right now. But, you know, can you buy over-the-counter medications with it? Sometimes it's like you can buy a toothpaste, but you can't buy a Tylenol. Are these regulations, like who's writing this kind of stuff? Uh, who's responsible for you know, dictating what is and what is not an eligible medical expense? Well, it's publication 502 from the IRS. So good old government bureaucrats get to decide what we can or can't pay for with the flexible spending account, health savings account, health reimbursement arrangements. And, and you're right. It's like there doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason to a lot of this stuff that's out there. Why can you pay for this and yet you can't pay for that? So uh, unfortunately, politicians are writing these kind of legislations and uh, we just try to follow them as best we can. And my favorite part is that, you know, living, uh, living in a, within the COVID pandemic, a lot of those regulations of what HSAs can cover were completely thrown out the window. And they're like, yeah, you walk into a pharmacy or the pharmacy section of a grocery store, go ahead and ring that HSA up. Cause why the hell not? Nobody knows anymore. Right. It's <laughs> hey, as long as you don't get audited. Right. I, yeah, that's true. But it's, again, it's like, it's back to legislating with the stroke of a pen. And I'm like, okay, all right, agencies, if you guys don't have anything else to do, then let's really As a disclaimer, I'm, we, are, we are not recommending you pay your, use your HSA to pay for anything else. So <laughs> we need to put a little disclaimer on here. Oh, not yeah, well, recommended. We'll have to say like none of this conversation constitute legal advice on Thank any you. level whatsoever. We're just looking at options and telling stories about uh, 
what, uh, what we've heard in the market, what we've heard coming back from physicians and, and uh, users of HSAs and employer plans. So now that we have a lot of that kind of backstory out of the way, um, hopefully it's clear and the people have an understanding of, of what HSAs are. You know, the big, bright, burning fire is always dealing with Freedom HealthWorks, de- bringing clients on, answering patient questions. Will my HSA, can I pay for my direct primary care membership with HSA dollars? Okay, so that's a loaded question there. So Big time, big time. You're um, on the spot. <laughs> we will talk about what some people do. We'll talk about the law. And uh, actually, let's talk about how it works inside the group health insurance plan, the group marketplace compared to individual marketplace too. Because the, the IRS seems to be very, very clear right now within the group marketplace that there is no legal way to pay for, for an employer to be involved in payment with the health savings account and a direct primary care doctor. So in other words, if DPC is involved, then that employee would be disallowed from putting money into an HSA on the group marketplace. But outside of the group sponsoring the direct primary care, there is a method out there that it seems to be universally accepted. And I, so far, I mean, I could be corrected. So far, I, I'm not aware of anyone being audited and having it being thrown out. But if an employee or if a patient were to pay for their DPC physician through a, a super bill. So in other words, if, if you receive a super bill from the direct primary care doctor for a data service that also lists services rendered and a total dollar amount. So let's say it's 75 bucks a month. So you receive a super bill from the doctor for $900 on December 8th of 2020, you went in and had your annual physical. This is all we did, all the blood work, so on and so forth. And it was a $900 price tag. Since it's a dated service and and services rendered, my understanding that constitutes an allowable HSA expense. The problem happens when an employer gets involved. That's when ERISA and different laws start to come into play that disallows even that little, little loophole, if you will, that seems to be accepted. So when the employer is involved, then all of a sudden it, it does turn into an employer-sponsored insurance benefit. So that loophole does go away in that instance. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't like the word loophole because it, it sounds like we're trying to get around some things. I just want to be clear that we're dealing with a lot of gray area and really lack of a path forward coming from the IRS because everything in DPC is built around a letter, I believe, that was sent to a senator back in like 2014 that said, yeah, we don't think HSAs are going to be eligible for a monthly expense into a direct primary care type of relationship. Now we have the growing popularity of employer plans coming into DPC, which is what you just touched upon there. So it um, if it sounds confusing, that's, that's because it is. Um, I know from a Freedom of HealthWorks level on the advice of our corporate attorneys, they said, try to get people, if they want to pay with their HSAs, try to get them to pay in full for those 12-month period. Because when it looks at monthly payments, if the patient ever did get audited, and, and to be clear again, it's not the practice at risk here. It is the patient themselves who would get audited by the IRS potentially. What would that look like? So what have you heard from anybody who actually has been audited uh, in different capacities by the IRS? I mean, what, what kind of penalties or what, what does that look like if they were to find an issue? 
Well, the penalty to the employer for putting together a plan that doesn't meet the uh, ERISA responsibility, so on and so forth, the, the penalties are pretty steep. In fact, it's the same penalty, I believe, that's out there for not non-compliance with COBRA, so on and so forth. And it's like $100 per employee per day. So you're talking mm-hmm. about thirty, almost $40,000 a year per employee. So employers don't want to do that. Employers want to make sure they, they really stick by the rules, the, the letter of the law. So that's a problem. There is another potential option that I haven't really spoken with. I don't think anyone about at this point in time. So here's a breaking news. Uh, Here we go. Yeah. So fresh off the, uh, I've been, I've been contemplating this for many years and I need some legal advice. So any attorneys listening to this, why don't we just put together self-insured employer group plans? They can't be fully insured because you don't want to pay for primary care twice. That's another part of the conversation we can hopefully we'll get into here in a little bit. We need to build the bridge between self-insured employer groups and direct primary care doctors. If someone can build that bridge, I think the floodgates are going to open because there's pent-up demand. Physicians don't like fee-for-service, and patients need to have 24-7 physician access. In my opinion, there's no better employee benefit an employer can offer than 24-7 physician access. So I'm a huge fan of direct primary care, and we need to get into the employer group marketplace because otherwise you're paying for primary care twice. If you're using a fully insured plan, you're paying for primary care inside the plan, and you're paying for primary care outside the plan. The money that's saved goes to the insurance company, not to the employer. We have to learn how to reallocate those healthcare dollars. There's ways to do that. So as my uh, Freedom HealthWorks podcast exclusive here, why don't we just build these self-insured employer plans that include the lump sum, as you talked about, as a one-time annual out-of-network physical expense? So why don't we just build a health insurance plan that says, okay, I want to offer $600 a year, up to $900 a year, up to $1,200 a year per person for out-of-network annual physical is going to be built into my insurance plan so that it's, it's a wellness initiative. So then it is an executive physical as far as it should be worded and and looked at from the IRS and from the physician. And my executive physical includes any follow-up, whatever that, that might happen to need for it because I'm charging it all up front. Mm -hmm. So why can't we just simplify this? Is that a viable option? So attorneys out there, we need someone to really dig into this because I think we might be making this much more difficult than what we really need to be. Absolutely. Well, because I think the simple answer, uh, again, to use a use a term that, that kind of, it almost sounds too good to be true, Scott. The reason why healthcare seems to be so complex is that there's a lot of money in it and there's a lot of incentive to not do the best thing for clients. <laughs> Boy, you got that right. You, you want my tin hat, uh, you know, theory kind of feeling about that one. So sure. I, yeah, you know, I, I, I hate to say that because I think it's a great idea, but show me the incentives and, and how employers go about that with their once a year conversation with their benefits people. And when they say, Hey, help me save some money rather than, Hey, it's a 12% increase next year. That'd be nice. Uh, good. Good question. There, there are very progressive uh, advisors out there nowadays that there are some that are really doing a really good job of, of opening up different types of what I call building healthcare consumerism ecosystem, where you've got aligned incentives. Because as you mentioned, incentives are, are misaligned everywhere in our healthcare system. And one of the worst ones, of course, that we're talking about today is fee-for-service primary care versus uh, direct primary care. There's, there's a huge difference when a physician is incentivized for seeing more people 
by doing stuff to people is how they generate more revenue. And, and the physicians that spend less time per patient get to run more people through their office per day. So therefore, they're incentivized by making more money. So the end result is they're, they're medicating symptoms instead of taking the time necessary to help you live a healthier life. Yep. That's wrong. We need to get rid of those incentives. So primary care and fee-for-service need to be separated from each other, in my opinion. And that's Absolutely. the root of really solving the healthcare problem is give patients time with primary care. The whole ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. When you're talking about the cost of the ounce of prevention, super affordable direct primary care compared to a pound of cure, a hospitalization, a stroke, a heart attack, and, and all the different procedures that are done, that there's a huge, huge cost-saving potential for our entire country if we can remove the fee-for-service from primary care. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break here from some of our great sponsors, and we'll be back to dive into that topic and some more. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at PatientsRisingConcierge.org. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs. And employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing copays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. Uh, once again, I'm here with Scott Borden, and we've been diving into health savings account, and we spent some time talking about some of the issues we're seeing and, and trying to get a little bit of clarity here. But right before the break, we were talking about the issues associated with fee-for-service, and, and I want to dive into fee-for-service and how it plays with what most people are familiar with in a self-funded type of insurance policy. So more commercial type of policies, because Scott, in, in my experience, a lot of people will say, we can't really justify the DPC addition to these plans because primary care right now in our plans is so cheap. Well, that's true. In fact, in a typical health insurance plan, depending on the health of the group, so on and so forth, but 
uh, across the country, only four to maybe 6% of our healthcare costs right now is being spent on primary care. And it's such a small piece. So, so why would I want to spend more than that on a direct primary care when it should only cost this much? And that's a, that's a viable problem. And, and that's a viable question that a lot of people have. But as we mentioned before the break, the uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Okay, if primary care physicians are stressed and overloaded to the point where they have panels of two or three or sometimes 4,000 patients that they're trying to take care of, they're given such a limited amount of time per patient that, okay, I've got an office full of people waiting in my waiting room. I do not have any more time to spend with you, Mr. Habig. So therefore, I need to send you off to the specialist. Here's one of my other pet peeves about misaligned incentives. I need to send you off to the surgeon that's going to get compensated to find out and tell you whether or not you need surgery. So the surgeon that will have a vested interest in making sure that you need surgery on that knee instead of something else, why are we sending our patients to a surgeon, the surgeon that is providing the service to decide whether or not you need surgery? That is something that just blows my mind. So why don't we have a chronic care coordinator, such as a DPC doctor, that can walk someone through all the care necessary in case someone comes down with cancer? You've got the oncologist, you've got the radiologist, you've got all the different surgeons and, and physicians and endocrinologists, and you're trying to figure out what do I need to do? And these doctors, a lot of times, don't talk to each other. So you don't know, you're, you're left at the whim of all these different confusing things. So if you have a doctor that knows you, that's able to walk with you through the healthcare system and be your chronic care coordinator, especially the, the people out there with the comorbidities, you've got the diabetes, you've got the heart issues, you've got all this stuff out there. Why not have a doctor that has a lot of time to spend with you to help you live a healthier life instead of just taking 14 different medications? What's the overall bottom line savings for Americans in their health and employers if they were to implement that strategy? That's not four to six percent of healthcare costs if you do it in that manner. Yeah, absolutely. So what does that conversation look like to try to educate somebody who could be a potential roadblock, whether that is a decision maker in a company or that is somebody on the benefits side who are saying, yeah, I understand DPC, I get direct care and what that, what that could do, but it just doesn't bring a lot of savings to the plan because they're looking at the dollar to dollar kind of sense and forgetting all those downstream benefits. So what would you say to that potential business owner or broker? Well, honestly, for some groups, it might not make sense. If you hire a whole bunch of young, healthy people that have no medical expenses to speak of and you have a hard time getting them to even go in and get a physical once a year, yeah, it's going to cost more for the DPC than what you're going to get in, in return. However, if you do have some unhealthy employees, specifically your least healthy employees are the ones that you want to have 24-7 physician access. Yeah. So if you look at it in, in, in that manner, it's not a constant money saving thing for every employer group. It's not a fit for everyone. But if you do have a, a maybe an older employer employees or, or employees that have chronic issues, maybe they're constantly sitting at a desk like I do seven days a week or whatever, you know, I'm not nearly as active. I have to make sure I get up and, and get some exercise in at six in the morning to make sure that I don't just sit here and have the other health issues that come with sedentary lifestyle set in. But 
a lot of people don't do that. So where is the the line there? It's not always going to be a, a cash savings. It's not always a financial reason why an employer should do it. But for those employers that do have chronic ill and a substantial no- number of chronic ill that are spending a lot of money on healthcare, all of a sudden the, the value proposition grows exponentially for a DPC component for unhealthy groups. Mm-hmm. I want to get kind of your, your opinion here. Paint us the perfect canvas. What what does the perfect healthcare system look like? You know, based on what we're talking and based on your expertise, if you had a, a magic wand and you waved it out there and said, "This would fix ninety nine percent of our problems or get us halfway there," what type of instruments will we be looking at, and what type of interaction between health plans, physicians, specialists, surgeries, everything that can, constitutes healthcare and medical care? What does that look like to you? How many hours do we have? <laughs> as long as it takes, you know, it's, we want to build that reality, right? We're all believers here. Oh my gosh. I, that's a great question. I, that, I don't know I've ever had that question teed up like that before. So I love it. So let's, let's start it on. <laughs> I don't want to lead the witness here, but you know, I, I know you have some, some uh, outside the box thinking. Well, first and foremost, I'm an analytical. And what I tell people when I do the health savings count and HSA qualified high deductible health plans, Imagine a world where everyone had a vested interest in not spending their own health care dollars and using a triple tax advantage health savings account and people actually being participants in the health care plan and, and care what things cost versus what I call a copay paying bystander. Someone else pays the bill. I just pay my copay. I don't know what the cost is. I don't care what the cost is. It's about time I get to use my insurance plan. That encourages people to overspend their health care dollars. That's yeah. wrong. So I, that's why I've been a huge fan of medical savings accounts and now health savings accounts for a long time. I want people to care what things cost. But we also have too many perverse incentives built into the healthcare system. So we've got like the PPO network, for example. A lot of people don't know this. The PPO network, we think that's saving us all kinds of money. The PPO, preferred provider organization, whether you call it EPO or, or HMO, there's different organ, the, uh, dis, discount network options out there uh, that are out there. They are averaging 241% of what Medicare reimburses for the exact same procedure at the exact same facility. People don't understand there's a huge disparity between what Medicare pays and what an insurance company pays. And so they think they're getting a discount, but you might be getting a 50% discount off of what? It's off of some fictitious list price of, of services that is ridiculous. So it's yeah, you money th- at that point, right? There you go. So I like to ask people, which would you rather have a 50% off a $20 gallon of milk? Would you be able to buy a gallon of milk for $3 and 50 cents? Which would you have? Hey, one of them you get a 50% discount on. Yeah. So if you look at it in that manner, the PPO discount is actually working against reducing healthcare costs. You've got part of the Affordable Care Act is medical loss ratio, medical loss ratio. And I'm digging deep in the weeds here. Medical loss ratio says that an insurance company has to spend at least 80% of smaller group or individual policies, 85% of a larger group health insurance premium has to be spent out on claims. So therefore, if a procedure costs $1,000, all the insurance company would be allowed to charge is say $1,150 or 15% above that. And so now they're working off $150 worth of profit, if you will, for a $1,000 charge. If they allow that charge to go up to $10,000, all of a sudden they got $1,500 worth of money that they get to operate all their overhead, all their profit, everything has to come out of that 15%. 
So it's an unintended consequence of the Affordable Care Act with the medical loss ratio that insurance companies have actually worked together with medical facilities and hospitals, if you will, to allow costs to escalate simply because it generates more revenue. And if you doubt this, take a look at the, the stock of insurance companies since the Affordable Care Act was passed back in March 23rd of 2010. Not that I am resentful about that date at all, but I remember exactly when the Affordable Care Act was passed because it was supposed to reduce health care costs by $2,500 per family. Remember that? Yep. Well, you can't build reverse incentives into a plan and expect costs to go down and require insurance plans to cover more things than, than they ever had to before and have costs go down. I don't know yep. who thought that would work, but I didn't. So that's part of the problem. We need to get rid of medical loss ratio. We need to get rid of the PPO networks and have direct contracts with hospitals, with outpatient surgical centers, with labs, with diagnostic imaging centers, so that you can get things done at closer to Medicare, sometimes even under Medicare costs. And you need to build a price transparency tool that incentivizes employees for going to the lower cost facilities. All they know is, hey, I went in network, so that's all I know. Well, what they don't know is the difference of in-network costs can be sometimes 10 times greater at a hospital to get that MRI compared to an outpatient facility. But people yep. don't know that. They're both in network. That's all they know. That's all they've been trained. And there's very, a lot of times there's no incentive that comes back to the employee for using the lower cost facility. So we've got to build incentivized price transparency tools. We also, <laughs> I can keep going here. Oh yeah, uh, I mean these are these are all concepts and and uh, you know things we've we've touched upon on this podcast. So yeah, keep painting, keep painting <laughs> that perfect canvas. Okay, um, I I agree with the high deductible health plan. I don't have a problem with getting rid of copays and, and requiring people to pay some out of pocket because it allows them to stay involved in the healthcare plan. Uh, so I, I don't mind the HSA qualified high deductible health plan. However, I think if they were to decouple HSAs, health savings accounts from the high deductible health plan, by default, that should allow D, DPC, direct primary care, to be paid for out of a health savings account because mm -hmm. it gets rid of the argument that direct primary care is upfront insurance. So part of me, I'm, I'm kind of torn on that one. That's something sure. where I'd love everyone to have access to health savings account. However, I also like the high deductible health plan. Yeah, and, and let me no uh, let me let me pop in there real quick, and, and and I appreciate you running through this. But we do have a lot of pushback every once in a while about high deductible health plans that most Americans can't afford them anyway. So they don't have enough savings in there. Let alone they probably don't have an HSA, whether that's by plan design or employer design, or they just don't know about it. But our high deductible health plans, and most people are saying, you know, six to eight to $10,000 nowadays on high deductibles. I know that the technical definition is a lot lower than that, but, you know, how do we get some of those people? Because a lot of what we talk about in healthcare, it defaults down to that super low minority of people that are just train wrecks, you know, to be insensitive, I guess, but there you have a lot of things wrong with them, whether that is genetic or environmental and, this conversation always needs to go there or goes there naturally in people's minds. But shoot, if I have a 10,000 deductible and I got $2,000 in the bank, what good is any of this going to do me? Yeah, good point. The um, average health insurance premium for an individual nowadays is $7,000 for a family of four is over $20,000 a year. Yeah. So my argument with the high deductible health plan is 
if you structure the plan properly so that you're moving away from a lower deductible copay plan, which by the way, this is a little known nugget here, the out-of-pocket maximum outside of the HSA qualified plans can now be over $8,000. So it's actually higher out-of-pocket to be an ACA, Affordable Care Act qualified health insurance plan. Might start out with a $500 deductible, but it might go 80-20 until you're spending $7,500, $8,000 or more out-of-pocket. Because the way I look at insurance, I don't care how soon the insurance starts to pay. I want to I want to know how soon I get to stop paying. And insurance is going to start to pay 100% from that point on. That's how you should be looking at insurance analytically. Now, I'm a numbers guy. So that's the way I look at insurance is analytically. So the high deductible health plan, even though $1,400 is the minimum, you're right. A lot of times out of pocket or the, the deductible is going to be $2,500, $3,000, $4,000 or more, uh, up to over $6,000 it can be now out of uh, deductible. Uh, that is a problem. But if you compare it and the cost, the monthly cost, to the lower deductible plan and the monthly cost, what you've got is a method to pay off that deductible because right. you might be saving a thousand or two thousand or three thousand or sometimes five thousand dollars a year for a family they're saving in premium that could be going into their health savings account. So the way I look at it, the first five thousand dollars of all their medical expenses are paid at a hundred percent with money that would have gone to the insurance company. But if they will be disciplined and take the premium savings and put that into their health savings account in a fairly short period of time, they can then pay off that, that out-of-pocket maximum versus if they're spending it all in premium to get that $500 deductible 80-20 plan that might be three or four or $6,000 out-of-pocket, how are they going to pay that off? Do they have that money in the bank either? Because a lot of people don't. So at least, A, you can pay for it with pre-tax dollars through a health savings account. So for most Americans, that's 20 to 30% savings or more. Uh, most states will give you a state tax deduction. You get federal tax deduction by paying for medical expenses out of the health savings account. As a country, we're only paying for about 20% of our out-of-pocket medical expenses with pre-tax dollars through a flexible spending account. That's the use it or lose it part. Anyway, we're not going to get into that today. Sure. Or a health savings account. So, so most of what we spend, we're overpaying for simply because we're paying for it with post-tax dollars. That's not wise. That's not smart money. We need to be able to push all this into a pre-tax category, which is one of the main reasons I've, I've been an HSA guy now for uh, 14 years. I've been doing talk radio here in Kansas City for about 16 years, trying to let the whole world know there's a much better way we can be paying for these things using triple tax advantage health savings accounts. Yeah. The bottom line, because I like to kind of stitch everything together here, um, it sounds like the best thing that we need are educated consumers turning patients into people who are able to go out there and spend their dollars the right way. Is that something that employer plans have a part in in the future? Or do you think we'd be better off saying, let's decouple insurance and benefits from employment together and create this individual market from it? Well, the individual marketplace uh, argument is, has been out there for a long time. And, and that way you truly have a portable insurance plan, not just COBRA for up to 18 months. You could keep it, so on and so forth. Uh, unfortunately, the individual marketplace is now more, has, in most states, most parts of the country, is more expensive than the group marketplace. So I don't know that that's as viable of an option now as what it was before. And I, and I know, I'll, just to raise the controversy thing here, Everyone talks about how health insurance has to be guaranteed issue. And, and in my opinion, it will remain guaranteed issue until socialized medicine takes everything over. Uh, hopefully we can prevent that. Let's hope not. <laughs> there, there are better alternatives out there. Yes. 
Yes, but uh, in my opinion, that's one of the worst things that happened to the individual marketplace, requiring uh, individual policies to be guaranteed issue, and that's that's controversial. Oh no, I'm not I'm not saying this to leave the unhealthy stranded without anything because 30 some odd states, nearly 40 states already had a high risk pool in place prior to the Affordable Care Act that made all health insurance plans guaranteed issue. So there, there was an outlet for it. Was it great? No. Was it perfect? No. But healthy people were able to get health insurance costs and go through a small little underwriting process, minor underwriting, it wasn't major stuff, and get health insurance that was 50%, 70% less than what we're paying today. So the rates actually doubled and sometimes tripled for, for people. And, and another, another little nuance of the Affordable Care Act is the three to one ratio. So now all of a sudden, older people are no longer allowed to pay more than three times as much as younger people. So you might have had a younger group prior that was able to get it and prior to the Affordable Care Act was able to get insurance for 150, maybe 250 bucks a month per employee. But now in order to charge the thousand dollars a month that the older person should have been charged or would have been charged previously, let's bring that down to $900 a month, which means the lowest cost younger employee still has to be $300 a month instead of 150. So the three to one ratio really hurt younger, healthier groups and got rid of lower cost options. Guaranteed issue got rid of younger, healthier groups that were able to get much more affordable insurance plans prior to the, because they had to go through minor underwriting. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a lot of government (coughs) interference and it sounds like a lack of education uh, on the individual side as well. Well, Scott, as we wrap up the episode here, you know, what are the three biggest takeaways you want to leave the audience with as it relates to HSAs? Well, health savings accounts, uh, in my opinion, everyone should have them. If you understand how insurance works, with a high deductible health plan, we don't ask in auto insurance to cover windshield wiper blades, oil changes, or even our tire changes. And by the way, those aren't cheap. You buy auto insurance to take care of catastrophic things. We need to put insurance in its place and use insurance to pay for major expenses. When you do that, there is substantial premium savings that is on the table. If you reallocate those dollars into a triple tax advantage health savings account, you keep the money. It rolls over from year to year. It's a fantastic retirement planning tool. It's expected a, a couple that lives 20 years into retirement is going to need nearly $300,000 to pay for unreimbursed medical expenses. Why aren't they putting back pre-tax money now in maximum wage earning years to pay for those future medical expenses with tax-free dollars? Everyone should be doing that. As far as healthcare, probably the most important thing is we need to end fee-for-service for primary care. Those two should be mutually exclusive. But right now, when you have third-party payers, insurance companies, You've got all these codes and systems that are out there. A physician is spending nearly half, if not more than half their time trying to facilitate payment from the insurance company instead of helping patients live a healthier life. There's a huge problem, a huge disconnect at how we are receiving primary care. That needs to change, and it can change. And building the bridge between self-insured employer groups and DPC doctors is what you're doing. Freedom HealthWorks. I've been speaking with you guys all year long. Your passion for truly bringing this change and making it happen for doctors is amazing. And it's fun to to know you guys. And I look forward to working with you in the future. So building a consumerism ecosystem, ending fee-for-service for primary care, and having everyone with a health savings account. That's what we need to do. There you go. I love it. I love it. Scott Borden, VP of Sales with Health Savings Administrators. Thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. For more information on direct primary care, visit freedomhealthworks.com to check out all of our episodes and check out any last minute gifts from our 
podcast shop. Visit healthcareamericana.com. Thanks so much for listening. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. New Era Health Plans brings a unique solution to health insurance. We offer private insurance that allows you the freedom of choice of any doctor, any hospital, anywhere. New Era offers modern, flexible health insurance, life and supplemental, Medicare and education resources. We are a national agency licensed in most states. New Era emphasizes educating our clients and helping people make smarter decisions that deliver value and peace of mind. Our plans allow our customers to save 25 to 50% each month while providing transparent health benefits at a price that actually makes sense. New Era Health Plans is committed to providing the best service to self-employed business people, individuals, and families. We are an endorsed vendor of the Free Market Medical Association and believe in the power of free market medicine. For more information, visit NewEraHealthPlans.com. New Era Health Plans, modern, flexible health insurance plans. New Era Health Plans, Inc. is an independent field marketing organization representing Philadelphia American Life Insurance Company. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out HealthcareAmericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.